Hey, welcome to the Youth Pastor Theologian Podcast, where theology and youth ministry meet. You can learn more about Youth Pastor Theologian online at youthpastortheologian.com or find us on social media at Youth Theologian. I'm your host, Mike McGarry. Thanks for joining us for this conversation about practicing theology and youth ministry. I'm here in our online studio with Griffin Gulledge. Griffin is the pastor at Madison Baptist Church in Madison, Georgia, and he is nearing completion of his PhD in systematic theology, focusing on Trinitarian hermeneutics from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Griffin has uh, published all over the interwebs, uh, places like TGC and, and other places, and he is one of my favorite follows on Twitter. So if you don't follow Griffin yet on Twitter, then you're going to want to do that ASAP. Uh, so Griffin, how are you doing today? Good. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, hey, before we dive into a uh, heavy topic of Christology and a hypostatic union and uh, Trinitarian stuff at Christmas time, um, I think it's always fun to learn a little bit more about our guests as a teenager. So, Griffin, when you were a teenager, who was your favorite band? Yeah, so when I was a teenager, I was sort of this like walking contradiction. I was a youth group kid who like dressed really preppy, lots of like khakis and polos and like the like white polo hat with the leather strap. Yeah. But I was listening to like 30 Seconds to Mars and uh, Fallout Boy and My Chemical Romance, like oh, in the car. Humor. These aren't all bands that I necessarily like, recommend to my church now. Um, <laughs> but like the song, like um, like Welcome to the Black Parade, yeah. <laughs> My Chemical Romance, yeah. or like Thirty Seconds to Mars music was was like heavily played in uh, in my car in, in high school, and so yeah, really into like emo punk sort of music. Uh, my taste has changed a little bit <laughs> over the yeah. years. I'm not going to necessarily hear that in my office at the church, but <laughs> I still remember all the lyrics. And, uh, you know, when me and my wife were driving down the road and we run out of things we want to listen to and we do like the throwback music. Oh, hour, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. That's where I go. And my wife was into like 70s country. So she hates it. Uh, but that's, that's those are very fun. different musical <laughs> styles. Yeah, yeah. She liked like uh like Tanya Tucker and uh there's this song like Lizzie and the Rain Man that she loves or another <laughs> song like Happiest Girl in the Whole USA and mine is like um you know Wake Me Up When September Ends and yeah. um screaming like red jumpsuit apparatus. <laughs> That's so, <laughs> so funny. Yeah, uh we we have a good time throwing it back. Um you know, all that, all that like sad emo stuff out there, it warms my heart still. <laughs> so, yeah, I think my taste has changed a little bit. That's funny. So this is the time of year when everyone starts posting their Spotify wrapped playlists and, you know, their most listened to artists and songs and everything. And my wife and I share a Spotify premium account. <laughs> so, nice. um, yeah, my, my friends always mock me for my Spotify wrapped because it's always like Taylor Swift's and, you know, Ed Sheeran and everything. And they're like, yeah, Mike, that's all you, right? 
Like I mean, the, just for what it's worth. I mean, I don't use Spotify. I'm an Apple Music guy, but like if 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 you looked at mine, I think like Taylor Swift would be on there. Um, I'm not saying I dislike her. I'm just saying she wouldn't be the number one for five years running. Oh yeah, no. I mean, number <laughs> one for me this year would be like the Miami Boys Choir, that like group of like Jewish boys that sing like all these songs in yeah. Hebrew that got so popular on TikTok. It got in my head. I couldn't get it out, and it became my song of the year. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah, TikTok has like shaped our music intake majorly. And so if I had a top yeah. five, you'd probably see like stuff that you hear there. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Hey, so it's uh the first uh week of Advent as we're recording and hoping to get this up for uh you listeners real soon uh to serve you as you're putting together your Christmas messages and uh Advent series and, and preparing all that. Um and so uh, we've recently published on the YPT blog uh, an article about Christology and the Incarnation. Um, and then around the same time as when I, I was finishing up the edits for that article, uh, Griffin, you posted about a paper on Athanasius and the Incarnation. Um, and so that's kind of the uh, genesis of, of this conversation to kind of give a, a deeper dive for our listeners about Incarnation and uh, and all that. So as your, uh, how far through your PhD um, work are you? When do you expect to be official? Uh, um, I with expect all that? to take comps next year. Okay. And then uh, dissertation. All right. And so you're focusing on Trinitarian hermeneutics. Um, what, what is Trinitarian hermeneutics and why are you focusing your studies there? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I think, let me reverse engineer the question. Why Why am I focusing my studies there? In 2016, a, a great debate broke out in the theology world. Honestly, probably one of the biggest theological debates in a very long time that consumed the theological world. I mean, biblical yeah. studies, systematics, historical, about the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and uh, it really engaged... Um, my heart, my mind, my studies, and um, close friends with some of the people who were really involved in that and mentored mm -hmm. by others who published through that time. And so that really, you know, in my heart, it became this thing that like I, in my heart, and my mind, I really wanted to study. I really wanted to learn more. And man, if we have been getting the Trinity wrong in a lot of modern theology and even evangelical modern theology, what would it look like for us to get it right? And how, how do we recover? You know, there's this whole movement of retrieval in theology and uh, historically referred to as like ressourcement. It's this French word that looks like resourcement, uh, ressourcement. And like, what does it look like to retrieve the doctrine of the Trinity from the early church? It's mm -hmm. always been important for me to say, like, if I'm a Christian, then what I believe is what Christians have always believed. Yep. Yes, I believe the Bible. First and foremost, the Bible norms all of my beliefs. It's the standard by which we measure all of our faith and practice. But the Holy Spirit, as God, does not change. He's not leading us in a different truth as past Christians. And so Christians should, in the main, believe what Christians have always believed, primarily on the doctrine of God. And so I wanted to make sure I understood that. So I got deep into the study of Trinitarian theology. And one of the things I found is uh, the development of the doctrine of the Trinity in the early church is not primarily a theological 
endeavor, it really is an exercise in biblical theology. It, mm-hmm. It's not them bringing Greek philosophy and imposing it onto the Bible or onto what Christians believe. Now, there's certainly some philosophical categories that they use, uh, but primarily they're reading the Bible. Uh, you're going to find a lot more Bible in Athanasius than you are in a lot of Southern Baptist or PCA sermons. Yeah, and so um, yeah, so I became interested in these like early church exegetical works, and same in the medieval era. In fact, my um, my um, advisor is a medievalist, um, and then um, from there into the Reformation, and realizing that we have really set aside something significant, which is that. Christians have not long believed that you should come to the Bible like this sort of blank slate and read it as if you don't know anything and just see what it says right there. But in fact, we should read the Bible as Christians. We should come to the Mm -hmm. Bible and say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of Jesus Christ, his only son, uh, or his only begotten son, born of a virgin. I mean, on and on and on. Yep. Nope. I'm not saying that the creed itself is like what we should have in mind when we're reading the Bible, but we should recognize that when we read the Bible, the God that we read about from Genesis to Revelation is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we should read the Bible in that way. We should understand mm-hmm. that the God we know at the end of Revelation is the God we see from Genesis to Revelation. And so what is the nature of Scripture such that um, the God at work in it in every part, is Father, Son, and Spirit. So Trinitarian hermeneutics is like, how does the Bible shape and form what we believe about the Trinity? And then how does the doctrine of the Trinity then shape and form how we read the Bible? So it really is this sort of like a Mm. self-reinforcing thing that I would say is the dominant way of reading the Scriptures in the history of the Church. It's not new. It's new to us, new to me. Uh, but it is not new to Christianity. And so trying to recover that. Yeah. Sold. Totally sold. Um, So we're going to need to talk again and uh, dive deeper into that because I I think, yeah, I I have. Yeah. yeah. We can take this conversation way off the rail. We we really, yeah. I'm, I'm, trying not to ask follow-up questions right now um, <laughs> because I, I really want to. We'll definitely dig in as we talk about yeah, me here. That would be great. Um, so uh, today we're talking about another element of uh, Trinitarian faith, right, of uh, Christology. Uh, and so about the person of Christ, and as we're um, talking about uh, Christmas and Advent and everything in this time of year, I just think it's really important for us to... Um, as youth workers, to be deliberate in thinking about Christology. What does it mean to believe that uh, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Um, and if the only explanation of the Incarnation that our students ever hear is that God became man and His name is Jesus, uh, that is a biblical statement, but if that is the only explanation of the Trinity uh, or of the incarnation that students get, um, then, you know, I, I think they're going to have a very shallow understanding of who Jesus is. No doubt. Um, so, Griffin, could you share with us a little bit about uh, what is the hypostatic union, how, and how would you explain that to a normal teenager? Because my, my hunch is that um, theology students learn about the hypostatic union, 
And then they're like, oh, wow, this is incredible. And then they try talking about it with, with, with a, a middle school kid whose mind is on the cute girl sitting next to him. And it's just totally over that kid's head. Right. So how do we talk about the hypostatic union in any way that is clear and simple? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Let me back up just a little bit and just say on the incarnation, one of the important things we need to recognize is that when we talk about the incarnation, um, we're not talking about um, the birth of Christ. Um, the birth of Christ is a, a part of redemptive history. Mm-hmm. But in the history of the church, when we talk about the incarnation, what we are talking about is the person of Christ. In fact, the incarnation is sort of shorthand for the whole gospel. Um, and so Gregory of Nazianzus, one of our church fathers from the fourth mm-hmm. century, um, definitely somebody you would want to read, Gregory of Nazianzus, I strongly recommend his works uh, to you. Um, and actually, you know, just, just for what it's worth, there's a little aside here. When you guys hear me talk about the church fathers, you may think like, man, I'm not a PhD student. I can't read that. I can't. Listen, the church fathers are so much more approachable than they the really reformers, are. so much more approachable than mm-hmm. the Puritans. If you're reading Puritan paperbacks ever, you can definitely read the popular patristic series. If you're if you're reading Tim Keller, you can read the church fathers. I promise yep. you. Yeah. Um, and because what they're trying to do is 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 biblical theology. Now, Augustine is kind of difficult. Um, but Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, Basil of Caesarea, um, Athanasius, y- you can read this stuff with a little bit of effort, and they're short. Mm-hmm. They are mercifully short. Um, and in fact, you get great intros. So like the intro to On the Incarnation uh, is written by a guy you may have heard of called C.S. Lewis. Uh, <laughs> and so um, I don't think they knew each other, though. Um, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. This is a new addition. Um, But so when we talk about the incarnation, what we're talking about is a shorthand for the gospel. Uh, The incarnation is a way of talking about God's work in Christ. Um, And so as a part of the doctrine of the incarnation, you have this doctrine, the hypostatic union. In the language hypostatic union, I actually can remember a band in high school uh, that I went to this concert, youth ministry concert called In Fuego. They used to have these shirts that said, "In fuego means on fire, because we were supposed to be on fire for Jesus. Very youth ministry sort of thing for the early 2000s. And this band's name was called the Hypostatic Union. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. It sounded like the band out of like the Goofy movie, you know? <laughs> oh, man, Hypostatic Union is here. I'm not sure the band had any clue what it meant. Um, <laughs> it just sounded cool. And- yeah, it just sounded cool. Like, let's pick a cool doctrine. Like, here's here's the next band, Extra Calvinisticum. Uh, but uh, I didn't know. It, it sounds like something technological. But it really comes from this language of hypostasis, um, that uh, referring to the natures. Um, and so it, the union of hypostasis is just the union of uh, the divine nature and the human nature. It's important for us to remember that Jesus has not always existed. And when you say that, people begin to panic. Like, mm-hmm. oh, this guy's an Aryan. You know, he's a heretic. Listen, Jesus was born in Nazareth. This is what Hebrews is after when it says, he became perfect by what he suffered. And we're like, well, how can God become anything? Well, he became a man. 
Um, there is no Jesus before his birth um, in Bethlehem, but there is the eternal Son of God. Mm-hmm. The eternal Son of God becomes man. So what's not happening? Well, he's not setting aside his divinity to take on humanity. He is not mixing divinity with humanity. In fact, there's this uh, sort of correction in Trinitarian theology saying that he's not tertium quid. Now, quid just means a thing, right? And tertium, for those listening, if you don't know Latin, it just means third. In fact, a good way to remember it is uh, at the end of the book of Romans, like at the very end of the book of Romans, it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Well, who is Tertius? Well, he's a slave. Slaves are often named uh, first, second, third. So the one who wrote the book of Romans is a slave whose name is literally third. And there's a lot you could say about what the gospel mm-hmm. does there. Uh, but he's not tertium quid, which means it's not a third thing, as if like you have humanity and you have divinity and the two get mixed together, and now you have this sort of cocktail of God-man, right? Yeah, yeah. But the hypostatic union uh, means that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and those two natures uh, have a a union that is uh, spiritual and mysterious and unmixed but utterly unified so that we can say God became man and say that he is no less God than the Father, and he is no less man than you or I. That's what the hypostatic union is. Yeah. Uh, And where do we see that in Scripture? Is this, uh, this clearly isn't something that, you know, Christians have just made up, right? So where where do we see the um, teaching of the hypostatic union in Scripture? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, John 1, right? I mean, uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that language dwelt, like he tabernacled among us. Mm-hmm. God is dwelling in man. Um, so I think that's the most obvious place. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Um, he was in the beginning with God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Those, That language of an eternal Word that becomes flesh, I mean, that's foundational mm-hmm. to what we believe about who Christ is. I think you see it in lots of other places. I think you see it in the book of Hebrews when it talks about um, when it talks about he, he was a man like us, and therefore he's able to empathize with our weaknesses. Um, I, could, I could continue. Uh, I think you see it all over the Bible. Yeah. Jesus claims about himself. Yep. He's the Son of Man, and he's the Son of God. Now, I know Son of Man does refer to Daniel seven. Um, but look, people say, isn't this Joseph's son? <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and what they're recognizing is that Jesus is is a human. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's really no doubt when you read the Gospels that Jesus is human with all yeah. the weaknesses of humanity. Um, the real question is, is he God? Yeah. Um, and so uh, I would say the fundamental assumption of the Gospels is that mm-hmm. Jesus is is human, yeah. and the uh, the underlying fact is that he's God, yeah. um, and that's that's what's revealed where on the cross. Yeah. Jesus says in the Book of John, you know, when I am lifted up, uh, I will be glorified. Right, and so the other piece, you know, you talked about the paper I posted about uh, where do you see this in the Bible? 
listen, we've got to teach our students, we've got to teach our people to read the Bible correctly. And that means they need to stop looking for one verse they can point to where Jesus says, hey, everybody, I'm fully God and I'm fully man. In 400 years at Chalcedon, they're going to come out with this thing called the Chalcedonian <laughs> definition cleared up. Guys, that's not how the Bible works. And, and if so it did, then we know that it's a later edition. Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and so the paper that I wrote was um, – about Athanasius' hermeneutics. This is how the early church proves the divinity of Christ from the scriptures going into at and after the Council of Nicaea and around Chalcedon and, and elsewhere is they look at the Bible and they say, okay, there are these divine titles that are ascribed only to God in mm-hmm. the Bible, that God is wisdom, that God is light, that God is king, that God has glory. Um, And so then in the New Testament, those titles are ascribed to Jesus Mm -hmm. in a way that they are never ascribed to anyone else. And so um, when you get to the book of Hebrews, um, you get get, um, Jesus referred to as radiance in... um, in Hebrews 1. And so the early church fathers are going to look at this and they're going to say, God has glory and therefore he has radiance. And those two mm-hmm. things are inseparable. Yeah. And they're going to say, um, God is, is light. And therefore, when Jesus is called light, he is being referred to as God. Um, and on and on and on. And so basically, I mean, I think, I think fundamentally, what we're um, what we're we're talking about here is a way of reading the Bible that accounts for um, glory and divine titles to be applied to God. And so, if you want to teach your students how to read the Bible, you would say something like, "There are names and titles and attributes that are only applied to God." When they are applied to others in the Bible, they are rightly punished as idolatry. Yep. These names are applied to Jesus, therefore Jesus is God, right? I mean, that's the argument, and that's how we should be reading the Bible. Uh, Jesus says in John 5, he says, The Father has life in himself, has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And so in Trinitarian theology, the idea is that what the Son has, he has by virtue of his relation to the Father— And so the Father is the source of the life of the Son, not that the Son was created, but they always exist in this relation of Father and Son and a Father who begets the Son. And so the titles that are applied to the Father are applied to the Son. That's how we know that Jesus is the Son of God. And so when people say, well, Jesus never said I'm the Son of God, I just want to say to them, like, well, you don't know how to read the Bible. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things um, that— Modern people, and especially I think students um, here, when they think about son and father language, um, is of about hierarchy. Um, and so, while yeah. this means that God the Father is more important than God the Son, it's like it's no. It, it has to do with homoousios, right? It has to do with that they are right. the same substance that you know they are related. Uh, so it's not about hierarchy of who is more important. Is that they are the same. Um, it, it's about yeah. their nature, not about their status. 
Um, yeah, so, homoousios is everything. Yeah. I mean, it's homoousios is Christology, yeah. and which is just to say, Son and the Father share the same nature, and uh, the difference is like, you know, Mike, you said you have a son, uh, right? Yep. When we were talking yep. earlier, uh, when you beget your son, it happens in time, and so he has a nature like yours. He has a beginning and he has an end. He is finite, he's limited, his knowledge is limited, his ability is limited, his power is limited. This is why it's so important that we confess that God is holy, because we're saying he's different than us. He's not like us. Mm-hmm. He's the eternal God. He's the immutable God. He never changes. He doesn't develop. He doesn't grow. So to even say that the Father could beget a son and introduce change into God would be to say that he's not God. He changes. He develops. He can have a son and not have a son. But the other thing is to realize that when the father begets a son, the son shares his nature, just like our sons share our nature. So when the father begets his son, or or not, don't think of it as when, it's not on a timeline. As the father begets a son, the son has the nature of the father, (laughs) immortal, invisible, only wise, righteous, holy, mm-hmm. eternal. And so they don't have a relationship the way that we have relationships with our Father. They have a relation. It's static and unchanging, always existing in a relation of begetting. Begetting is not a thing God did in the past. It's a relation that exists yeah. between Father and Son forever. That's why Jesus is God. Yeah. So um, in the midst of all this theology, right? Um, what are the, what are some of the pastoral applications? Uh, like why does, what does this matter? Um, as we talk about this with, with students. Um, so one of the painful things that youth pastor theologians endure is Mm. we talk about when we talk about theology with students, um, we are accustomed to getting pushback by parents mm-hmm. saying, my kids don't need to understand this stuff. They just, they need more conversations about um, sexuality, about peer pressure, about mental health. And those are all important things for us to discuss and to teach. Um, but my kid doesn't need to understand the Trinity. That, that's a statement that I've, I've heard multiple times from parents mm-hmm. in my, in my ministry. Um, I believe thankfully it. not where I am now, but uh, elsewhere. Um, and so, when we talk about theology with students, one of the reasons why youth pastors don't is, frankly, job security. Uh, so, why is this a pastoral care concern for youth pastors who are trying to make lifelong disciples of the students in their ministry? How do we teach this and apply this and help students and parents understand why this matters so very much. Yeah, I I think um, there's nothing more foundational to our students than knowing who God is. We want them to have a personal relationship with God. It would probably help if they actually know who it is we're talking about. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I know what I just said earlier sort of puts things up in the clouds a little bit, but it's pretty simple to look at your students and say, the way that the Old Testament talks about God is the way the New Testament talks about Jesus. I think our students mm-hmm. can handle that. They can handle trigonometry. They yep. can handle that. Yep. I think that our students can handle, hey, God's not like us. He's different. 
You know, your dog has a different nature than you, but your kids have the same nature. Well, God's son has the same nature, right? Mm-hmm. God speaks to us in ways that we can understand. Yep. Um, but, you know, sometimes I think what youth pastors have done is they've tried to situate all this in the Bible. So we're going to spend all of our time trying to convince our students that the Bible is true and they need to believe whatever it says. And so when challenges come to their faith or ethics, you know, whether it's sexuality or identity or whatever, it's like, well, you just need to believe the Bible, right? The Bible says that's bad. And so what the world does is comes and attacks the Bible and brings up questions about textual criticism and things that they really can't answer. If you think youth pastors teaching the Trinity is hard for them, wait till they have college professors talking about German higher criticism. <laughs> um, and I'm not saying we don't need to turn yeah. them to the Bible. We absolutely do. But as we turn them to the Bible, they really need to understand who the God of the Bible is. That's going to mm-hmm. ground them yep. in ways that questions of biblical authority, I think, don't ground them as well. But these things aren't separated like they're hand in hand, like they're inseparable. Biblical authority and the identity of God go together. So let's do them together. Um, and so when I talk to our students, I'm, I'm the senior pastor of our church, but I have a youth guy and uh, we work together. I strongly believe in youth ministry. I don't want it to be siloed off to itself. I discipled a group of, of high school seniors this past year at our church. Like, how do you know that you can trust God? Like, how do you know? Well, if he changes, you can't trust him. How do you know he's not going to change his mind? How do you know that if Jesus has saved you, that he won't change his mind about that salvation or that your union with Christ is a, is a trustworthy way of knowing that you won't mm-hmm. go to hell? Well, when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, one of the things we, we talk about is this uh, unchanging relation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we'll say that God has a seity, right? So, so God has life in himself. He's not dependent on anything. And because he has a seity and he does not change, he's immutable, he, he, we also have this doctrine of divine simplicity, that God is irreducibly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's how he knows himself, which means that there's not parts in God, but there's only one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share a will. They share an essence. They share divinity, right? They share these attributes that are proper to the nature and to the will, like invisibility, immortality, yeah. immutability, omnipresence, omniscience. Why do these things matter? <laughs> well, because I need them to know that when you're saved, the Bible says that you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, then you're just as secure before the Father as Jesus himself. And Jesus is secure before the Father, not because they agree and have a union of will. He's secure before the Father because he and the Father are one, John 10. They have the same essence. They have the same will. How do you know he's not going to change his mind about you and not want to save you? Well, (laughs) the way you know that Um, is the exact same way I just described. Everything about the trustworthiness of our salvation, the certainty that if we do the things the Bible says that we'll be sanctified, the trustworthiness that God is not going to cast us out, but he'll actually forgive our sins. And that when you look at porn again, when you slip up with your boyfriend or girlfriend, 
when you go to that party and get drunk, when you don't read your Bible every day, whatever level of religiosity or license that you have in your life as a student, what assurance do you have that you can come back to God and find forgiveness? The assurance that you have is that when you see Jesus in the Bible and you see him as merciful and compassionate and kind, and he says, my, my burden is light, my yoke is easy, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, that he actually reveals the Father, that when we look at what Jesus is like, we are seeing what God is like. And so T.F. Torrance, a Scottish theologian, says, there's no God behind the back of Jesus, which means that like Jesus that. is not compassionate and kind, and behind him is a father who wants to crush you, but the only reason his wrath is being held back is because the son is begging him. Yeah. But in fact, the father is just as merciful, kind, and compassionate, and longs to save and redeem us. So the father sends the son, and the son is the true revelation of the father. It's what he's really like. When you understand the Trinity, only then can you understand the merciful heart of God. And I think— <laughs> If that's not the foundation of Christian ministry and assurance of salvation, I don't know what is, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it's pretty important. Yeah, I I agree. And this is why we're having this conversation. So, um, as we we wrap up, um, Griffin, is there any final um, kind of word of caution to avoid? (laughs) And when you're talking about the... the, um, message of Christmas, don't do this, or any final admissions of when you're talking about the message of Christmas, do talk about this. Um, Just kind of a closing word of um, encouragements and and caution. Yeah. um, Don't don't say things that are theologically wrong, like uh, God sets aside his divinity to become human. don't don't say um don't don't say things that make it seem like god is not truly becoming man um and so man god is coming to save us and he puts on humanity um but but then you talk about it in such a way that makes it sound like either he loses his divinity that's what i just mentioned or you talk about it in such a way that makes it seem like his humanity is just incidental, mm-hmm. that it's all it's all divinity. God becomes man. Like, that's the message of salvation. Gregory, of, I think it's Nazianzus who says, what is not assumed is not healed. So Jesus becomes fully human in order to heal us to the uttermost. Um, and so let's make sure we're talking about it in that way. And then I would just say, like, let's not rob our people of the beauty of the incarnation by talking about it as if uh, the incarnation is really just the moment that Mary gives birth. Yeah. It, it's not. And so um, when you read—actually, this is so interesting. When you read the book on the incarnation by Athanasius, mm-hmm. do you know that he doesn't mention the birth of Christ one time? I was shocked about that when I read it. I, I, yeah. I hadn't read—I had read a lot about it, but I hadn't actually read it until a couple of Christmases ago. And I was like, yeah. wow, this is really interesting. And so— like it is a huge yeah, mistake yeah. for us to make the make Christmas about the manger. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I'm just I'm just I'm just gonna go out on a limb here and say like, do not make Christmas about the manger. Yeah. Do not say he fulfilled God's promises 
by coming as a little baby. Don't Ricky Bobby this thing, you know, Saturday nights, like sweet, six pound, four ounce, baby Jesus. <laughs> Jesus came to die. Like he couldn't be more clear. And so mm-hmm. look at the manger, but look through yeah. the manger and see the cross. Yeah. Because that's why he's here is like Jesus comes to live a, a, a sinless life and to die a substitutionary death. And, uh, and to raise again, to triumph over death and hell and give us the hope of eternal life. And that's just as true at Christmas. And if you talk at Christmas about the wonder of little baby and the faith of Mary mm-hmm. and the coldness of the manger and how bad the innkeeper was, and you turn this into like a Pixar movie, yeah. you can get some real sweet sentimentality. Oh, man. Look how much God loves us. Yeah. That he would be a little baby born in a cold little manger. Sentimental Christmas. And there is a little bit of truth to that. I don't want to throw that out. God does love us so much that he becomes weak and poor and is born as a baby in a manger. But listen, (laughs) the incarnation is not the little baby in the manger only. The incarnation is that God becomes that little baby so that he would become perfect by what he suffers, mm-hmm. that Jesus would become a man, that Jesus would die. And uh, look, Jesus talks about his own life that way. Jesus talks about his coming that way. He talks about the Father sending that way. This is not me imposing theology nope. on Christmas. This is me returning us to the scriptures. And so let's just make sure that we don't talk about the cradle without the cross. Yeah. And I Amen. think uh, I think if we'll do that— um, then we can talk about the manger and we can talk about the angels and we can talk about peace on earth and goodwill to men. And we can talk about the shepherds uh, and, and we can, we can talk about uh, Joseph's uh, faith and Mary's faith. And we can talk about the Magi's gifts and all that, but we just need to realize at every step that the faith that they're displaying and the worship that they're giving and the gifts that they offer um, is all to God who's become man to save his people yeah. by dying in their place. So if we do that, we'll have a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, hey, let me let me get your your opinion on one one thing real quick. So hark the herald angels sing, right? Yeah. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Am I wrong in just I every time we sing this song, my wife just elbows me in the in the ribs because she knows. I just, oh, I, I struggle with this line, right? Just, is Christ merely veiled in flesh? Um, is is that a faithful way of talking about the full deity and humanity of Christ? Or am I just reading too? I just, he wasn't merely veiled in flesh. He He became flesh. He didn't just hide himself in a human body, right? I, yeah, I, str- I, mean, I struggle with a line. I know what it's saying. So um, I would say, and I'm looking at the lyrics right now because I want to make sure I get this right. But immediately before this, Christ in highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. So I think the line immediately before this is giving us highest heaven, Lord, and offspring of the virgin's womb. So everything we need for Isaac <laughs> is there. So I want I want to give Isaac Watts some props here 
and say something like veiled in flesh probably is like Hebrews language of like the veil, like the veil being torn. Yeah. And so I actually think it refers more to the language of like, you know, Jesus is standing in front of people and they don't see him. They don't get it. And, and so it's not obvious and apparent that he is the Lord. Um, sort of that Isaiah 52 language of like, um, he had no beauty that we should yeah. Yeah, admire yeah. him. You know, he was marred beyond all human semblance, Isaiah 53. And so I want to say like, when you look at Jesus, like the deity is veiled. But it is not merely a veil. He mm-hmm. is the offspring of the virgin's womb. And so I think I— All right, so I'll sing it with gusto this year with that interpretation, yeah. not yeah, not with the interpretation of, oh, he's just hidden under a human body, which is how I'd always understood it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't— um, I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to, like, sing just that lyric by itself. Yeah. But it's sort of like the Getty hymn, you know, um, behold the man upon the cross, like the father turns his face away. Like, what are we even saying? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wrote, I wrote my PhD entrance paper on that lyric, trying to like talk about it Christologically. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things where it's like, if you look at it, like the father rejects the son, then like, wow, you're committing some like Trinitarian error. But if you look at it, like uh, the Bible says the father can't look upon sin, and you're sort of anthropomorphizing. I think you can sing it in a faithful way. It's not my favorite lyric, but hey, we're all sort of struggling and crawling our way towards the truth. Uh, but I think I think Isaac Watts has got it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, and also, also it's art, right? <laughs> yeah, but also like, I mean, the first of all, I would I would love for more songs with any theology like this to be written, mm-hmm. and I think some guys like Matt Boswell are out there doing it. But like, man. Hark the Herald Angels sing, closing out with, uh, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. Like, so, that's happening. I just need to defend myself. Yeah. I love the song. It's just that it's, it's just that, it's just that one line, and it's just kind of... What, what else do you hate? Christmas and apple cider? <laughs> I know. I just, I, I'm, uh, if only you knew, Griffin, if only you knew. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm difficult. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really a believer in the inerrancy of Scripture and the Broadman Holman hymnal. Um, <laughs> so I just, no, I, that's not true. There's some, there's some bad ones in there, like God of Earth and Outer Space. But I, <laughs> I think that it's in the garden in there because I could go off on that one all day. Man, I have banned in the garden <sighs> in my church. Um, it's terrible. Yes, but I think that. Uh, I, I think I think Isaac Watts has got it right. Glory to the <laughs> newborn king, right? He's newborn. He's a king. Amen. Amen. Well, listeners, thanks for hanging in there with us. <laughs> and um, sorry for me hating Christmas, apparently. Uh, Just turn all that <laughs> hatred onto Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas. Oh, it's, ar- it's already there, brother. It's already there. Griffin, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for your ministry. And... Um, if anyone wants to follow up with you, how would you recommend people stay in touch with you and, and follow uh, what you're putting out there for us? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. That's probably the best way. Uh, I don't really accept Facebook requests from people I don't know, but you can follow me on Twitter and you can follow my newsletter, which is gullage.substack.com. 
And I post things there uh, when I write at other outlets. And then sometimes I post my own reflections there. And if you've got angry emails, you can send them all to Mike at whatever his email address is. That sounds good. That sounds good. Great. So, uh, youth leaders, thank you for your ministry. Thank you for wanting to give students a, a solid biblical and, and theological foundation for their ministry. If we're trying to build lifelong disciples, then we need to be practicing theological reflection in how we're ministering to them. So, Merry Christmas, and Christ is veiled in flesh. That's right. The Godhead <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us for this conversation. Please visit youthpastortheologian.com to learn more about our resources. You can find us on social media at Youth Theologian. We also have an active Facebook group where you can ask questions, share articles, and generally encourage fellow youth pastor theologians who are in the trenches with you. We'd sure appreciate it if you'd be so kind as to subscribe, leave a review, or even recommend this podcast to fellow youth workers. You can also subscribe to get new articles delivered to your inbox and to ensure that you don't miss any fresh content by checking out our website at youthpastortheologian.com. Most of all, we appreciate your ministry and your partnership in the gospel. If there's a topic that you'd like us to address or if you have an article to submit for the blog, then you can also share those on our website by following the submissions tab. In the meantime, keep your eyes on Jesus. And we'll see you next week.